everyone, and welcome to The Goods. This is Brian, and Dan is with me. Hey, Brian. How are you doing, Dan? Hanging in there. How about yourself? Hanging in there is the right word for it. So, I've had a busy week, and it's stretching onward, because uh, pluses and minuses, ups and downs, tales to tell. I went on something called the LA Intensive, which is a program that the grad school I'm currently attending offers in Los Angeles, where we were going around for a week meeting alumni of the school who are making a living in the entertainment industry in that city. But then towards the end of the trip, I was coughing and sneezing. And somebody said, you should probably take a COVID test. And lo and behold, I've come down with round two, Dan. Oh, man. You got it while traveling, just like me when I went to Paris. That's right. And so they voted me off the island. They kicked me out of the Barbie beach house. <laughs> and they put me up for the final day and night of the trip in the hotel where some of the staff was staying. And uh, they did advise me to come home on the same flight. So, uh, I mean, I guess that saves money and time and confusion. Yeah. Um, so I did that. Uh, but my my housemates did not want to get sick either. So I'm still in a kind of limbo. Still can't quite go home, which we'll see as a theme of the film we'll be talking about today. <laughs> I like how you brought that in together. Are you feeling okay? I think I'm on the mend. My nose is still plugged up. I'm going to take another test later. I assume it's still going to be positive, but I think I'm getting there, getting towards the better end. Well, I'm I'm sorry that you had to have your trip interfered with, but glad that you're starting to feel better. Yes, thank you. So what have you been up to, Dan? Has it been as eventful? Oh, definitely not as eventful. My... Uh, Five-year-old daughter, she's been doing uh, a few extracurricular activities. She did a dance program and she did a acting program. And those have all culminated in like a lot of extracurricular things on weekends. And so I've been doing that. Um, I've also been extraordinarily busy editing and writing. For the first time in a long time, I hit a streak of posting a review on my review website seven days in a row. I call it a golden week or a perfect week. It hasn't happened too many times since I stopped my 150-day streak back in December. And then, yeah, just editing the pod and also looking forward to my upcoming birthday. It's two weeks away, my 35th birthday. So um, I, I think some fun stuff for me and some fun stuff for the pod. Cool. Yeah, I don't know if you've talked about it on the show yet. Uh, did you mention your daughter's play? I don't know. I don't, uh, I'm not sure that I did. So my daughter wrote a play. I helped her out, but you know, she's five. She can't type yet. So I did that for her. Anyways, her play was selected and I thought it was really good and really funny. And they put it on at this festival, this student playwright festival with like a, a, a reading of it, basically with a little bit of stage action. And, um, Brian, I, I think I sent you the YouTube video. Did you watch it? I did not watch it, so you'll have okay. to send it again. I saw the pictures from the event, and it looked like a good time. You've got a budding Forrest Penrod on your hands. 
Throwback to which episode was that? Read and Pro- weep? Probably read it and weep. Yeah. If I had to guess. Or or a Jamie Bartlett, perhaps. Perhaps, yeah. Yeah. And for reasons we'll get into here soon, I had read it and weep on the mind. Because the film that we're going to be talking about today is the Odyssey miniseries produced by Hallmark in 1997. This aired in two chunks on Sunday and Monday night, May 18th and 19th in the year 1997. So I want to take you on a a brief educational journey through these Hallmark miniseries that were produced in the late 90s into the early 2000s. Did you have much awareness of these, Dan? No. You had mentioned this on your list of, I don't know if this is a spoiler that you like this, but on your list of film favorites. And so it's something I wanted to catch up with at some point, but I basically knew nothing about it. Um, I saw that it was produced by Francis Ford Coppola, And we talked a little bit about him and his unusual background producing his own movies and his own projects back when we talked about The Outsiders. Oh, interesting. I didn't even remember that. But yeah, I toured the Paramount backlot as part of this L.A. intensive and lots and lots of Godfather stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. So... This was a string of miniseries that they would typically do these like two consecutive nights, usually in the spring. And it would be an adaptation of some epic work of literature most of the time. And the first one that I was aware of, the first one that they were really advertising as a big television event was this Odyssey movie that was in 1997. And then the next year... They had Merlin, and they they kept going. There was Alice in Wonderland in 1999, Arabian Nights in 2000. And, like, the last one that they really hyped up was Dinotopia in 2002. And if that one seems like a, an outlier, it's because all the others, you know, were at least, like, a century old. And <laughs> most a lot older than that. Uh, Dinotopia was written in 1992. (laughs) So not exactly the same high echelon of art. Did you read the Dinotopia books? I did read the Dinotopia books. I think they're cool. I read the first two. There was like two big like coffee table picture books. And I think a few more in that line as well. But then they tried to like branch it out. They had like young chapter books and stuff and like Game Boy Color games and I didn't (laughs) keep up with the franchise that deeply but I did read the first two picture books. Well I'm glad you said that because I was talking to my wife's cousin who I'm pretty close with and he had a box of books from when he was a kid and I was uh, going through them and he had a Dinotopia chapter book and I said weird I I could have sworn I read a book in this series, but it was a picture book when I was a kid. And he said he didn't think any of them were picture books. And so we decided I probably was remembering some other dinosaur related franchise. But now I'm thinking it probably was one of the Dinotopia books. If you're saying there were some picture books in the, in the series. Yeah, those are what introduced the world. They're like art books more than they're storybooks. 
Okay, yeah, that, I think that's what it was that I saw. And then these things kind of tapered off, and I think that was really the end of the 90s, is when the Hallmark miniseries ended. <laughs> what other? I feel like there's other things where we've talked about them doing stuff year after year. Uh, oh, when we talked about the Anne of Green Gables miniseries, or I, yeah, I guess that was 50 episodes as opposed to the two episodes here. But that was in Japan. They did animated ones year in, year out. I think I'm also thinking of the when we talked about the wonderful world of Disney for, with uh, Taurus Trap, how they would regularly do movies. I don't know if any of those were adaptations or not, but. Right. Like they'd introduce an original movie every year into the lineup. Yeah, I would be interested to see some more of those anime adaptations. I feel like the modern version of this is the Hulu eight episode series. There's been a whole bunch of books. I guess those are more like uh, modern fiction, but so many books have been adapted into short series on streaming. And I keep putting them on my to watch list with my wife because she tends to be even more interested than me, but just don't have that much time to watch things with her. I, I usually do a lot of my watching uh, on my own, so I haven't caught up with too many of them. But it was cool to see it like a, a real adaptation of considerable length, but not from the streaming era, from the network era. Right. And actually, these have a pretty decent presence on the streamers. Like, they're very accessible. They're not hard to watch. They're up on, like, Tubi and Pluto and... I think you can watch them on Amazon and they have official uploads on YouTube where they're listed as hmm. one season. Like each one is each one is one season with two episodes. Wow. And I remember in the later 2000s that the sci-fi channel would air the Hallmark miniseries and they'd like marathon them in a row and fill up a day. To be coming in clutch, though. Yes, as it always does. And I watched these a lot, at least several of them, particularly the first two, Odyssey and Merlin. Merlin was the one I really gravitated to. It's a telling of the Arthur legend with a focus on Merlin, played by Sam Neill from Jurassic Park. There's a good chance we'll watch that one someday. But the Odyssey, my dad taped it off TV, that initial airing in 1997, when I was seven years old, and I watched it like multiple times a year, probably from when I was seven to like when I was 12 or something. Wow. Seven is probably a little too young for this one. I was going to say, this is at least PG-13, I would say. Probably PG-13. Yeah, that's how Wikipedia classified it. Okay. There's quite a bit of like sex or implied sex in yeah. the both chunks of this film. And what bugged me as a seven-year-old is that the best monster scenes come like in the first 15 minutes of each half. And then the rest is him canoodling with goddesses. And it's like, ah, <laughs> oh, I gotta wait. I gotta wait till he kills all the guys at the end. It's like, I know I'm gonna have that payoff, but I gotta sit through all this sex. I feel like five years later, your opinion would have been flipped on that one. You are correct, Dan. You're right. <laughs> And that's why I've kept it 
close to my heart all these years. There's something for everybody in the Odyssey <laughs> miniseries. Boys of all ages, at least. And it uh, became relevant again in freshman year of high school, where I had an English teacher at our high school named Mrs. Seavey, who ended up being a really formative teacher on me. She was the English teacher. And she really liked Homer. So we read the Iliad and the Odyssey. She played part of this movie in the class. Then each year she would arrange international trips. There was this travel agency called EF Tours that specialized in trip planning for school groups. And anybody who went on an EF tour got a blue and orange backpack. So then if you saw somebody wearing a backpack like that, you knew that was like, you know, a, a bond that you shared. Oh, it's like the inside club. Right. It's like the members only jacket. Exactly. And so every other year she would do a trip to the Galapagos Islands. That was what she was really known for. But then on alternating years, she would go to different destinations. So when I was a sophomore, it would have been spring of 2006. The trip that she organized was, uh, she called it the Wine Dark Sea which is a term used in the Odyssey. It comes up in this movie. And the goal was to trace the Odyssey journey and just stop at a lot of Greek islands that Odysseus hits up on his trip. Wow, that's so awesome. You did that as a sophomore in high school? Right, so I was 16 and I went with Mississippi on this trip. And it was my only experience to date being on a cruise ship. So I've mentioned this once or twice before on the show, but not really gone into detail. But we went to like Crete and Mykonos and Santorini and Rhodes where the Colossus was. That's awesome. Yeah, it was a great, great trip. I want to go do that now myself. And actually, we did spend a little bit of time going quickly through some of Italy like, we, we went through Rome, we saw the Colosseum, we went to Ephesus, which was, it's on the coast of Turkey, and Ephesus is awesome. That, that's where the, uh, the letter to the Ephesians in the Bible was addressed. Okay. Um, but it just has, like, two whole miles of ruins, like, ten times the size of the Acropolis. Oh, wow. Like, you know, we, we started out at Athens and we saw the Acropolis and that was cool. But Ephesus is way bigger. It's like Colonial Williamsburg size, but just row on row on row of all these columns and like edifices of, uh, you know, classical architecture buildings. That sounds really cool. When I went to Italy in 2016, we did some ruins tours. And it if you like are actually in there... I, I mean, I don't know how much I actually learned. I definitely learned some, but just being kind of overwhelmed by the size of it, it like really makes you feel like, oh yeah, this was like a real civilization with people in places that walked around and stuff. And I don't know, just being there, like it really kind of dawns on you in a way that you can intellectually understand, but not really feel. Right. And something that 
history podcaster Dan Carlin, who I bring up all the time, likes to talk about is think about if you lived in the period that we call the Dark Ages, where, you know, the Roman Empire had pulled out of much of Western Europe. And so the technological stock market had crashed is what he usually says basically that they were at a low point and so they could see these ruins around but like not achieve that same level of technical know-how in many cases wow pretty strange not something we really think about happening today but if something really catastrophic occurred maybe it could yeah, I mean, there's plenty of apocalyptic novels where basically that exact thing happens. Right. I It really struck me, like, I've always thought the idea of, like, a technological downfall just seemed ludicrous, given what we have today. But then our, this is going to sound silly, a tree fell down and hit a power line near our house, and we lost power for two and a half days, which doesn't seem like that long until you start to realize all of the impacts that it has upon you. And this was just like one tree hitting one power line. And I was like, you know, if the entire government ceased to function for like, I don't know, a week or like a month, let alone decades, you can really see how you would start to feel like time had regressed back to the 1800s, you know, or further. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. We rely on our infrastructure in ways we don't even think about. Mm -hmm. But so I took this trip in 2006 and saw a lot of Greece and bits of Italy. I went to the Vatican on Easter Sunday. Wow. Really, really great trip. Best and longest international trip that I've taken. And I just had a good relationship with this teacher, Mrs. Seavey. And another thing that she did in our freshman year English class was she sent my writing into that scholastic writing awards that I talked about in the read it and weep episode. So just a, a good supportive teacher. That's great. Always want to pay tribute to those when you can. I know. Yeah. I've obviously mentioned many times that by trade I am in it, uh, I'm a software developer, but you're in an improv troupe. <laughs> I think that kind of shows that like we're on different sides of the BA versus BS spectrum, although I got a BA, not a BS, or I guess you would say uh, fine arts versus STEM. But my background is actually in education. And I don't know, I have a lot of admiration for teachers. And part of me wants someday to be a teacher and to try to have an impact like the one that you described on people. I think you're making more money where you're at. Well, that's part of it. And also, even if I were able to make it work financially, literally every single teacher I know says it's horrible being a teacher right now because of gestures broadly at 2023. Yep. So let's talk a little bit about what's in the movie specifically. So the rough outline of the story I'm sure you're familiar with, Odysseus goes to fight in the Trojan War, and then he's got to get home, and it takes him a really, really long time to get back. Had you seen any other adaptations of this story before, Dan? I don't think so, actually. Um, I might have seen like a couple of scenes or something if they showed it 
when I read it in English class, but um, this was definitely the first full-length adaptation I recall seeing of it. Okay, cool. Unless you want to count Trojan War from 1997. (laughs) Of course. As listeners should remember, that's what we talked about last week and kind of spurred me to pick this one. So I remember there was a wishbone of the Odyssey. There's an Arthur where they talk about it. And actually, the first PG-13 movie that I saw in a theater was Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? from the Coen brothers, which is like a loose Odyssey adaptation. Mm -hmm. It's set in the 1930s American South, but each of the characters, like the, the main character whose name is Ulysses, which of course is the Roman equivalent of Odysseus. Uh, So George Clooney plays Ulysses and he escapes from a chain gang with his chain mates. And then they've got to get back to his hometown and they encounter obstacles. And each of the obstacles is sort of an analog with something that pops up in the Odyssey. That's been one I've been meaning to revisit, but maybe the time is ripe now that I have the Odyssey itself fresh on the mind. I think that was the first movie to use digital color grading. Right. It made everything kind of yellow. Yeah. It's a good movie. I should probably watch more of the Coen Brothers stuff. I've seen, you know, a few. Big Lebowski and... Fargo. Fargo, definitely. No Country. No Country for Old Men. I just saw that one. Um, Burn After Reading. Oh, I haven't seen that one. I've heard it's pretty good. But there's a few that I I still got to check out, uh, like that Hail Caesar and... There's a few others. Did they do Fantastic Mr. Fox? No, that's Wes Anderson. Wes Anderson, okay. George George Clooney threw me. Yeah. Wes Anderson has a movie coming out this year that is my most anticipated of the year. It's a Wes Anderson meets Tom Hanks meets potential alien scare. It's called Asteroid City. And all of the sh- the trailers and clips and uh, preview pics look so good. I'm so excited. Wow. For it. And is everyone in the world in that movie? Yes, everyone. It's got a cast of like 50 people or something. Wes Anderson's cast just gets bigger and bigger and bigger because people want to be in that stable of actors. But Anderson is also having a moment right now because like TikTok, they, I guess, are having a my life as a Wes Anderson movie trend. I don't know too much about it, but right now that's the buzz. And another reason, I mean, if you're on movie discussion forums like I am, he's never not having a moment. Like He's always in discussion because he he produces films at a pretty steady clip. So there's always something coming up. Mm -hmm. But with the rise of these AI clip generators, his style, because it's so distinct and symmetrical with distinct color palettes and actors reappearing, has been the subject of numerous AI-generated parodies, like Star Wars, if it were a Wes Anderson movie, or Lord of the Rings, if it were a Wes Anderson movie. And because pretty much everyone in the movie world is like super anti-AI, it usually comes with a lot of scorn. But it is kind of nifty looking. Right, I have seen some of those. But at the start of the movie, we get introduced to Odysseus, who is the king of a Greek island called Ithaca. And... On the day that the movie starts, 
a son is born to Odysseus. The son is Telemachus. Lots of good ancient Greek names in this story. But Odysseus gets snatched away from his family because... I guess it's kind of like a World War One situation. You got all these separate kings of, like, every little island's got a king, but they're broadly working together as this Greek alliance. And so if one king has beef with somebody, they all got to go and, and fight in the war. Yeah. And so the, the biggest Greek king, Menelaus, I guess Menelaus and his brother Agamemnon kind of co-rule Sparta. And they've they've rung the bell. They've summoned all the other Greek kings. They got to go fight a war in Troy. So they all got to jump on their ships and go over there. And they don't ever say why in this movie. There's never a mention of Menelaus's wife, Helen, getting abducted by the Trojans. And that's why they got to go over there. So the Greeks really just kind of look like bullies in this one. It's like, go over <laughs> there, besiege the city. And try to smash our way in. Yeah, it's like a 30-minute adaptation of the Iliad and a two-and-a-half-hour adaptation of the Odyssey. So you kind of get the, the backstory almost. It's like uh, previously on the Odyssey. Right, which I think is good. I mean, you you want to know what got him over there. Yeah. So we had Odysseus. We had Menelaus. First time and, and very much not the last time that I thought of the Disney film Hercules with Phil, Danny DeVito, reading through the list of, of famous heroes is Odysseus, Theseus, a lot of yeses. And so whenever a new character would pop up, I was like, a lot of yeses in here. <laughs> and we have Achilles and his Verschlugene heel. I was going to bring that one up, too. Right. So, yes, condensed events of the Iliad are unfolding. Uh, but back on Ithaca, Odysseus has left behind his wife, Queen Penelope, with the new son. And before he left, he made her swear that if he is still gone by the time the son has a beard, that she should remarry. That's a long time. Yeah. <laughs> Couple thoughts about this. Like, his explanation is, like, Telemachus needs a father. It's like, well, he's probably going to need a father before he's 15. <laughs> I mean, does that sound reasonable to you? I mean, by the time you're 15, if you had no father figure, I'm not sure introducing a father figure at that point is going to make much of a deal, much of, a, much of an impact. It makes a little more sense if you think about it as, like, a mentor to raise this king because he's going to be the king but still like then you've got 15 years or however long i don't know when when he, they expect his beard to come in 15 was the number in my head maybe more like right. 18 or 16 or i don't know but who's ruling ithaca in that time i don't know i know it, uh, lots of questions uh, i i would think that at 16 or whatever i mean he could just become the king it's like if you're saying there needs to be a steward, you're, you're going to need him sooner than that. Right. But also that they're having this conversation at all raises issues further down the line that we'll get to. Also, we talked last week about things that would be resolved with cell phones. If they had cell phones, a lot of this would have gotten easier. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Hey, how's the war going down? 
Horse emoji. <laughs> but for what it's worth, I don't think I even had a cell phone when I was in the Greek islands in 2006. So I think I got my first one in 2008. Mine was 2005 or 2006, maybe a couple years before then. Um, but I didn't know how to text. I got a text when I was a freshman in college. It was the first text I ever got. And I didn't know how to open it on my phone because I had never gotten one before. It's so weird to think about now how I didn't text, you know, I don't know, just the seems so intertwined with having a cell phone. Yeah, I, I can't remember. I think I could text on my first phone. Hard to even remember. So long ago. Ancient days. You used to get charged by the text. It would be like five cents a text to, to read and 10 cents a text to send or something like that. Wow. But the war in Troy rages on. Troy is known for its high walls. So it's a walled city. They can pretty much only fight outside the city walls. And the, the Greeks can't get in. But they've been fighting for like seven years, I think they say. You know, seven to ten years. A long time. And in that time, they've had the great heroes battle each other. And so like the best Greek hero killed the best Trojan hero. That's Achilles versus Hector. But then somebody figures out that they can kill Achilles and they do that. And so in, in some regards, it's a stalemate. It's like, will this ever end? The 10 years thing is really interesting to me because as it was happening, I was like, doesn't this war take 10 years in the Iliad? And then all of a sudden they're like, it's been 10 years. I was like, oh, I guess that was a time jump. I didn't realize that that was a time jump. There's a few times that that happens in this movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the times I watched this, I watched it with my mom and she said she didn't think Odysseus looked young enough. And I mean, part of that is that you got to have somebody who is going to go and age 20 years over the course of the story and has to still be believable. Right. So, I don't know. It never threw me. He never seemed old to me. But, yeah, long time span we're dealing with in this movie. Something we talked about in our discussion in English class of the Homeric epics is a device called the Homeric epithet, which is basically like a little nickname that everybody gets. And so when they'll say their name, like, for instance, in, in Tolkien... There's a device that, like, you always get a little bit of everybody's ancestry, you know. Mm. Aragorn, son of Arathorn. Everybody's introduced that way. Well, in the Homer stories, everybody gets introduced with a little epithet that describes what they do. And so Odysseus is always described as the great tacticianer, mm. which is a phrase that comes up in the Coen Brothers movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? George Clooney gets called a great tacticianer. And so what that means is that he comes up with plans. That's his special talent. He can always puzzle through things and come up with a scheme. So he conceives that the way they're going to end the Trojan War is the Trojan horse. The Greeks are going to destroy their ships. They're going to use the timbers to make a big horse and present it, I guess, as a gift of like, we surrender. Here's our white flag except it's a giant wood horse and don't look too closely at it <laughs> and so what are your thoughts vis-a-vis -vis the trojan horse dan 
very bold move of Odysseus to assume that this would work. It's like the Greeks had to be pretty dumb. Like, oh, they left a big giant horse here and they didn't send us a message or anything. And they all left and we didn't see any of them leave. I mean, I know you have to have some some suspension of disbelief and like accept that some things will seem kind of normal and then something totally ridiculous will happen. And that's just the nature of a a story like this. But um, one thing that it made me think of as I was watching this time is I've been reading a lot of uh, picture books to my kids, of course. And uh, one trend that was really popular in the 90s was adapting international stories and native stories. And there's this one uh, writer and artist who I really like named George McDermott, who focused a bunch of his books on trickster stories. So this is like Raven is a famous one from the Northwest Pacific area. And Anansi the spider. Exactly. And it occurred to me that Odysseus in many ways being the quote unquote great tacticianer is like an extension of the trickster archetype. That's a great point. I like that. Yeah. So my Trojan War thoughts, the biggest one that you mentioned to me that always bugs me is where would the Greeks have gone they destroyed their ships to make this thing. They got to be on ships to be able to leave. So where could they have possibly gone? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Good questions. We we should give Homer a ring sometime and see what his thoughts were. <laughs> I, do we know, is Homer actually a real person? There's debate. Okay. S- some people say it was multiple people, but... I don't know. Or maybe it was just like the tradition of a bard was a Homer. Mm. But who 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 can really say? But the like stock description of Homer as an individual is that he was a blind poet. Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. There's a couple of blind related subplots here. Oh, that's right. At least this is kind of lampshaded the iffiness of the Trojan horse because this guy comes out from the Trojan lines and he's like, dude, Trojan King Priam, don't be so stupid to accept this thing. His famous line is beware the Greeks bearing gifts. And this is a guy, the soothsayer Laocoon, which is spelled L-A-O-C-O-O-N but the first person who addresses him in this movie calls him Lao Koon. <laughs> it's like they read it and they, they had never consulted with the classics expert to, to see how this was pronounced. Exactly. He says, it's the soothsayer, Lao Koon. And then later, somebody else says Laocoon. And like, was there no script supervisor on this thing? It's like consistency, people. You yeah. got to go for continuity. I mean, even if you're going to say it weird, like, sure, c- classic languages, it's like, do people actually speak them? Do people know how they're supposed to be pronounced? Is there a consensus? Sometimes not. But there should at least be consistency from beginning to end of a movie. It's like in that uh, Ralph Bakshi film that we watched, when sometimes they called him Saruman and sometimes they called him Aramon. Right. I remember us talking about that. Like, what the heck? <laughs> But Laocoon gets eaten up by a sea serpent, and people are like, well, that's an omen that we shouldn't listen to Laocoon or Laocoon. 
and the Trojan horse is brought inside the gates. The Greeks win the war through underhanded tactics, and they get to go home. But before he departs, Odysseus stands on this, like, cliff outcropping, overlooking the sea, and he makes this big prideful boast about how great he is. And actually, I've always really loved this moment where he yells, I, Odysseus, a man of blood and flesh and bone, I have conquered Troy! And if I ever, like, accomplish something really great or just have an exceptionally good day, sometimes I think, I, a man of blood <laughs> and flesh and bone! <laughs> Have you ever seen Streets 112, the YouTube video? No. Oh, it's one of my all-time favorites. Basically, it's part of the video game speedrunning scene. Okay. And there's a level in GoldenEye, the N64 game, called Streets or something like that. It's I don't know if that's what the full level's called, but that's what the speedrunners call it, Streets. And the record for it was 112. And this one speedrunner was trying to get get there. And when he finally got one minute and 12 seconds, when he finally got it, he, he like got really excited and had this amazing just bout of celebration where he watched the replay of it and was talking about how great it was. And it's like the most infectious and inspiring thing. It's like what you're talking about, like goes through your brain as you achieve something great. And his key line in there is, I am a legend. I am a fucking legend. And I think that too, when something goes well, but uh, I was thinking, thinking of this guy. Uh, I don't even remember the, his name as Odysseus was doing this. I was like, this is his streets One Twelve moment. And to be honest, he, he kind of deserved it because he, they want the war It's a 10 year war. And he came up with the gambit and yes, he came up with the gambit and the gambit worked. Yeah. They won it overnight. And but this pisses off Poseidon, the sea god, who thinks he deserves some credit for sending that sea serpent that ate the soothsayer, which is a pretty small contribution, but I guess I it know. was important. It, very indirect. And he's like, no, you didn't do it, you jerk. Why The gods do all the work. It's like, dude, you you were like, played a very, you made like 2% of the credit here. Oh, I did 98% of it and Poseidon over here did 2% of it. But there are a lot of gods playing their parts in this story. Yeah. Uh, the one we see the most is Athena, played by Isabella Rossellini. She's kind of like the guardian angel of Odysseus, so she'll often pop in and help him out. But right now, Poseidon curses him. Says, you gotta get home on my oceans, and you, ingrate, I'm gonna make it as hard for you as I possibly can. <laughs> Like, the dude wins a war, and he says, oh yeah, I rule, I did it. And Poseidon's like, uh-uh, dude, I'm going to ruin the rest of your next 20 goddamn years. You're going to be miserable, because you think you did it? Wow. Like, okay, Poseidon. I'm going to ruin this whole man's career. <laughs> yeah. I will say that uh, one of the things that I took away from the Odyssey when I studied it in high school is that it's kind of transgressive in the way that it depicts the gods as like really petty and feuding with each other and stuff. And that's kind of uh, different from your typical myth story. Although the Greeks, uh, their gods have always had problems, but 
it really stands out in the Odyssey, just how like everything is like little feuds and loyalties and clicks and petty grievances with each other, with the gods. Right. There's a lot of that in the Iliad as well. And in the Ray Harryhausen movie, Jason and the Argonauts, the whole story is presented as a chess game between the gods. And so like one person is Jason and his guys and the other god is all the monsters. You see that even in the Disney Hercules where Hercules like or uh, where Hades brings out a game board. He's like putting monsters on it. Yeah, yeah. That's very Jason and the Argonauts. And this whole movie kind of harkens back to that tradition. Like we saw in Clash of the Titans. I was going to say, we haven't shouted out Clash of the Titans, which is the other sword and sandal epic type that we watched. Mm -hmm. And this whole story past this point is like a lot of little stops at a lot of little islands. Kind of that cruise ship experience that I was getting in 2006. Where Odysseus and his crew keep pulling in at these different ports of call and they'll have to encounter some obstacle there. So in a way, it's it's a little episodic. Right. But the very first island is my favorite, and that's the Cyclops Island. It, it almost makes me a little sad that we get the very best one up front. And maybe you got some varying opinions on that, but... Like, they find their way to a cave, they're looking for food, and there's food in the cave. But then the keeper of the cave comes home, you know, Goldilocks style. The three bears are coming back. And it's this giant with one eye. And this is when, like, the effects hit you in the face. This is the first big, like, wow, special effect moment. What did you think of the effects broadly? That's cool because they're all practical. And they are, I mean, they are kind of in general TV budget level, I would say. Uh, High-end TV movie budget, I would say. So I wasn't like completely bowled over, but they're pretty cool. There there's some good moments. I did notice that a lot of times, like when the crux of the action was about to happen, there would be a dramatic pan away from it. And some of that was just to cut down on the violence to keep it on the TV. But, you know, I could tell they were a little constrained by their budget, um, but I still thought it looked pretty good overall. And if I'm not mistaken, did I see that uh Jim Henson had something to do with, or Jim Henson's company at least had something to do with it. Right. So Jim Henson's uh, creature shop made the creatures. Okay. So Henson was dead at this point, but his company was still producing characters for projects like this. And yeah, this Cyclops, I think the way they did it is they had like a, a head on a guy and then it was radio controlled like in Labyrinth, so that the mouth could move and the eye could move. And I think it looks pretty good. Yeah, still not my favorite Cyclops. That would still be Hercules, of course. The really pudgy guy. Oh, right. In the climax. But I, I do think you're right that this is the best one of the episodes. It's just got the most like incident to it and mm-hmm. stuff that happens. And I, I feel like... I've read, I forget which book number this is within the Odyssey, but uh, I've been in like reading groups where we just read this, or maybe it was a class or something. You kind of read this as a standalone, this whole episode, which I don't know if any of the other ones are quite interesting enough that you would enthusiastically read them as standalones. Right. Because they kind of have to logic through it and you see Odysseus coming up with his plan and there's multiple parts to it. 
we don't need to beleaguer every single detail, but like, so the Cyclops keeps sheep. And in some versions of the story, I think in the book, they like put sheep pelts on themselves and are able to sneak out that way. Um, which yeah, that shows up here too. We have one of the guys do that. Right. Uh, but the the main thing is that they blind the Cyclops. They sharpen this big stick. They get him drunk so he falls asleep. And then they stab him in the eye. Brutal. Which is pretty brutal. Yeah. This one, it annoyed me a little bit because the reason they need to do that is because he gets drunk and falls asleep. But they can't get out because of the stone. But when the Cyclops comes in, so when we first see him, the stone clearly doesn't cover up the entire gap to get out like you could squeeze a person through the corner gaps of where he rolled the stone but then they shoot cut back to it and of course you need it to be completely covered for the purposes of the story oh interesting yeah i mean it works okay for me and there's also the bit that like he introduced himself as nobody so there's other cyclops presumably somewhere on this island but he calls out nobody has blinded me <laughs> which of course <laughs> it's like is that a normal thing to say no yeah it doesn't make any sense like if somebody shouted that i wouldn't be like oh that's good nobody blinded him just like yesterday nobody blinded him like that's a normal day you don't need to go and announce that you didn't get blinded that day by anybody <laughs> i would still be like that's that's very odd it's like that tweet uh one of my all-time favorite tweets which is just my not involved with human trafficking shirt is getting a lot of questions clearly answered by the shirt. <laughs> so they get off this Cyclops Island, uh, which, by the way, apparently the Cyclopes are sons of Poseidon. So just further on down the Sea Gods shit list. I would be more annoyed about someone stabbing my son in the eye and blinding him than saying one time... I rule. <laughs> well, it just kind of all adds up, I guess. I suppose, yeah. Then they encounter the god of the winds on a different island. And this guy is very pro-Odysseus. He's like, you're smart. You make good plans. I like you. And I don't like Poseidon. So here's what I'm going to do. And he sucks all the wind, except the wind blowing towards Ithaca, into a sack. And gives the sack to Odysseus and says, wait till you get home to open this. So the crew loads up back into the ship and they sail towards home with the helpful wind blowing them along. And they get within sight of Ithaca before this curious crew member, he, he's described, that's his epithet at the start is that he's curious, is this guy named Anticlus who I thought looked like Greg Sells. I don't know if you see that, Dan. <laughs> um, but Interesting. He's like, so Odysseus falls asleep. And Anticlus, there's, so the whole crew is like maybe 20 people, but there's like five of them that get lines and focus in the story. Like there's one who's fat and there's one who's really obsequious. He's always calling Odysseus master. And then there's this guy, this Anticlus, who's like the troublemaker. He's like Curious George. He's always got to cause shit to happen. Yeah. Curious George is a menace to society, if you read the old books, by the way. <laughs> but it's more than that also. He's like 
envious of it. Oh, he's got a treasure and he's going to keep it for himself. I want share of the treasure too. I'm going to see what's in the bag. Right. So he slashes open the bag, blows the wind all over the place, and sends them rocketing back out to sea. And like they're close enough that the wind is blowing the trees around on Ithaca. And this is just terrible. And it's- the stupidest thing is it had no reason at all to happen. Right. He could have just been like, hey guys, this is the wind. And if you open the bag, it's going to mess up our whole trip. So just don't do that. Instead, he's all coy about it. Yeah, why? Like, I mean, this could have been solved by having the god, the wind god, be like, but if you tell anybody, it won't work. Right. Which is silly, but that kind of stuff happens all the time in Greek myths. Like, exactly. If you turn around, you'll turn into a pillar of salt. Because I said so. Um, But he didn't he didn't say that. You're right. It's it's totally the bullshittiest part of the entire story and it it really stuck out to me just seeing it as stark as it is here it's like homer was like oh i got damn i got about a third of a book here that's not quite enough to get you all the way to epic poem length so i need to find a way to like undo it it's almost like this could have been the last chapter but he's like "Eh, i'll just I'll, i'll leave it at the one third mark and then have the other things happen too afterwards Yes, very frustrating. But they come next to the island of Circe, who is a witch, played by Bernadette Peters. I'm sure I've seen her in other things. I actually think I saw her, like, sing at the Kennedy Center at one point. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah, I looked her up because I thought she looked familiar, and there was no one thing that stood out to me, although she's been in a whole lot of stuff, so it's it's probably something I've seen. But... Um, she was in Annie, the the 1982 adaptation, and a couple other things. She's also done some voice acting. Mm. But she bewitches the crew and transforms them into animals. But luckily, Odysseus has the benefit of he's in good with some of the gods. So he's on Poseidon's shit list, but some of the gods like him. And so Hermes who is dressed like a gay bar go-go dancer, comes to Odysseus in his, like, golden Speedo. Loved Hermes. This is great. (laughs) High-quality content. Like a 90s stereotype of a gay man with little wings on his shoes and a bedazzled diaper that's all gold. (laughs) Yeah, he's he's got, like, gold leaf in his eyebrows. But, yeah, he sails in and he gives Odysseus, like, this magic weed that makes it so that the spell doesn't work on him and so Cersei is kind of taken aback that he is not affected by the spell and she says all right Odysseus I'll let your men go if you come to bed with me and so then they just start having a bunch of sex I guess some of these heroes are like self-insert characters it's like the beautiful goddess is like oh you didn't fall for my trap well, now we got to have sex for five years. <laughs> five years! So, yeah, there's like Rip Van Winkle stuff going on, I guess. He thinks they're only having sex for five days, but actually it's five years. So, let's talk about the theme of fidelity, or lack thereof, in this story, Dan. Sure. You know, it's it's not fair to judge 
ancient cultures on sexism because every culture that's ever existed has been sexist but this one feels particularly so it's like penelope oh she even though everybody's like you should probably marry another man he's probably dead it's like this whole big deal will she ever select another suitor meanwhile odysseus is bouncing from greek island to greek island laying with whatever hot goddess is on that island and nobody does anything other than shrug about it Right. Yep, that's the whole thing. That's the story. It would have even made sense because Penelope has good reason to assume that Odysseus is dead. But Odysseus, I mean, he's probably assuming that his wife is still alive, you know? Right. He's got to get home with celerity. That said, Circe, at least, it's like, okay, well, that's the quid pro quo she's demanding. Sure. It's like, the my men are animals. Like, I got to save them. And if that's what she wants, I guess I'll comply. Mm-hmm. Uh, but further along, it gets less defensible than that. But so they're able to, yeah, dig their ship out of the sands and, and eventually sail away. And the last thing that Cersei says here in part one is that the person who knows the way that they're going to need to go to get home is a prophet named Tiresias. A whole lot of yeses. <laughs> But the catch is that Tiresias is dead. And so to find somebody who's dead, you've got to go into the underworld. So part one ends with them pulling up to a volcano, which is the mouth of the underworld, which I think is a pretty cool place to pause things. Yeah, it it does beg the question, like some of this stuff, it, it's like, OK, why does he have to go to the underworld is it just to ask to how to get home? It's like this. I don't know what's going on here. Why does he have to go to the underworld? You're, you just go home, dude. I don't like. How do you not know how to get there? But I don't know. <laughs> yeah, didn't he watch Moana? It's like you got a way find by the stars. Yeah, or something. And how come he can find the underworld, but he can't find? <laughs> His home island. That's the thing to me. It's like, oh, so people just know where the underworld is? It's like, okay. You don't need any special directions to get to the underworld, but you do to get home. And and we had seen him already navigating there. I mean, maybe it's like, I don't know, I guess all this stuff. He's like, oh, he's in weird quasi-god reality, but also not quite reality. So you need to like escape from there like a waking dream type thing, or I, I, it could be some some of that. Right. What I was thinking of this time was the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, I can see that. It, there's no place like home. I mean, that's the moral. Right. So Odysseus climbs down into the underworld, and I like the way they do the ghosts here. Everybody is kind of like slightly chroma keyed. It's kind of like the um, posterization that we saw in Ralph Bakshi, Lord of the Rings. Oh, yeah. Good call. Where, like, parts of them are colored and parts of them are dark. And they look almost animated, but still live action. And they're all kind of golden. Like creepy Oscars or something. Oh, interesting. <laughs> but they, uh, as as Odysseus is walking through the halls of the underworld which is like a green screen effect. It's like cosmically oversized and he's walking through and and volcanic lava is raining down. But he starts seeing specters of people who have died during the journey. So like 
his bard who got eaten by the Cyclops is there. And he runs into his mother from Ithaca, who he actually didn't know yet had died. But that's what happens when you're gone for 15 years. Right. What did you think of the acting in this movie overall? It's kind of all over the place. For one, the cast is huge. Yeah, highlights and lowlights. What are you thinking? All over the place is what I was thinking, too. There are moments that really work for me. And I think the name of the guy who plays Odysseus, what what's his name? I had it up a second ago. Armand Asante. Okay, yeah. He I was surprised and impressed. He he carried the movie well enough. I was like, okay, this is a guy that I, I was like not tired of him by the end of the three hours, which given how much ridiculous nonsense we gotta put up with with this guy, <laughs> I, I thought was good. Right. I like Armand Asante too. And surprisingly, I haven't seen him in much else. I think he's in Judge Dredd. There's some action movie that he has like a prominent role in. Yeah. So he also was the star of a, either a show or a miniseries about the gangster John Gotti, not the movie that got really bad reviews a couple years ago, but a TV series but yeah he hasn't been in quite as much as you would expect given how prominent he is here it's like it feels like the kind of role that would have been cast they would have cast like some aging star from like the 70s or something like that some right. some big name get burnt burt lancaster something like that right he probably would have been too old but by, by that point but we like burt lancaster now i know we do yeah but something of that ilk right and then the actress who played Penelope had some terrific scenes and then like two or three scenes that I just thought were horribly overacted and, and treacly. But uh, she gets a lot. She gets a lot of the dramatic material to deal with because she's going through a lot emotionally. Right. So let's talk about that for a little bit. So back on Ithaca, the years are passing and men, I guess, prominent lords from around the area are starting to horn in on Odysseus's territory. And they start, like, living at his house. And Penelope is, like, using every ruse she can think of to delay them. And one is, oh, I have to make this tapestry. And I can't get married again until I finish the tapestry. And then, like, at night she's unweaving. It's like two steps forward, one step back. So she never seems to make progress. Uh, but also, like, she already made that agreement with Odysseus that when the beard is on the chin, she'll remarry. Yeah, it seemed unnecessary to have another one. Yeah, no reason to have another ruse, especially because the man seemed to know about this beard thing. Yeah. So, like, that word has gotten out. I, I also feel like she could just say, I do or don't want to get married. I mean, maybe this is me projecting my 21st century morals and gender mores onto it but like why does there need to be a ruse just like i am getting married or i'm not getting married because it feels like she has some say in it but not enough that she can like she, she can't do it without relying upon these gambits these these uh tricky games yeah i mean the sense that i got was she's gonna have to get remarried but she'll get to pick who from among the available choices right yeah. Or like if there was some other party who wasn't even part of this group that could fill the role, maybe that would work too. But 
anyway, the tension is building on the home front. One thing about the Penelope actress. So this is rather shallow. She has an unusual look. Like she has these deep set eyes that I think you could describe as sunken eyes. And then just up against the sea goddesses, she doesn't really compare. Oh, interesting. Uh, I mean, I guess the point is who could compare? And it's kind of just demonstrating that he has this supernatural loyalty of a kind that he would put aside the sea goddesses and be driven to return home. But yeah, not, uh, not Bernadette Peters and not Vanessa Williams, who we'll see here soon. Right. I can buy that. So down in the underworld, Odysseus runs into Tiresias, who's played by Christopher Lee. So Saruman, who I shouted out earlier, he's here in this movie. Yeah, good get. Christopher Lee. This was before he had his resurgence in popularity with Lord of the Rings. Right. And so Tiresias says that the way to get home, other than the way that they did a little while ago... <laughs> is they got to go through the Strait of Scylla and Charybdis. So this is my favorite part of part two, is they go to this, this stretch of sea that's between two perils. And on one side is Scylla, this like Hydra thing with a bunch of heads, and Charybdis, which is a whirlpool that for some reason has teeth. And... Man, I don't know if Odysseus just drops the ball on this one, but like he had had a pretty good track record so far of keeping his unit coherent and cohesive and not really losing a lot of his dudes. But here, everybody dies. Just every single crew member bites the dust, gets eaten by a monster. Mass slaughter. It, it does throw you off guard because it's like one or two die per thing per per episode related to that episode basically yeah it's like it's like willy wonka and the chocolate factory you know right it's like oh the one guy who gets eaten by the cyclops oh the one guy who distracts the cyclops okay those are the two who die in the cyclops episode but then all of a sudden out come these tentacles or whatever they are and it's just like whoa we just lost half the crew and then here goes the other half too yeah they're like piranha plants from mario mouths on the end of long tentacle stem things and weirdly enough the last guy to get blasted off the cliff face and eaten by the whirlpool is Anticlus. like i thought i remembered that he got killed when he opened the windbag but he uh, he came back down after getting blasted into the sky i guess he was fine and stuck around for the whole rest of the journey and he's the last one and and then he's gone but now Odysseus is the sole survivor and he drifts around the ocean on like a piece of flotsam from his smashed up boat. Finally gets to another island. Of course, it's always just another island, island after island. <laughs> and here is the home of the nymph Calypso, played by one time Miss America Vanessa Williams. And there wasn't there something where like she was Miss America and then she had to not be she had like disqualified. Yeah, I think you're probably right. And I think it was like viewed as racist or something. Yeah, I don't really remember I think it. The given justification was that she like posed for nude 
photo shoots. I yeah. think even before she was Miss America, and then they like gave that as a reason that she couldn't keep the crown. Anyway, very beautiful woman. Here she is as yet another sea nymph, and more canoodling ensues. So I have a question, Brian. Maybe I'm just missing it, but is there the call of the sirens? Is that in, in this? Yeah, so that's the biggest thing that they left out of the book. Okay. Because I was like, is this the call of the sirens? It has some of the things that reminds me of it, but it's, I don't think I think this is a different one. So I'm glad that I wasn't just going crazy here. No, that is one of the most famous episodes from the Odyssey where uh, Odysseus puts the he has everybody else put wax in their ears mm-hmm. and and tie him to the mast so that he can hear the song without steering the ship to doom. Right. Right. So I think that is something that's missing here. I mean, it's definitely not in the movie, and I think it would have been cool to see that save some of the repetitive stuff. You know, just, uh, uh, yeah, I think they should have put it in. They they have pretty much everything else of note. I mean, I was overall impressed and kind of bowled over by just how faithful it is, at least based on what I remember of the text. At this point, I haven't read it in like, I don't man, probably 20 years or so close to it. But yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's really faithful. Pretty much the only other thing that I can think of that's not in there is there's a scene where they eat cows that belong to the god Apollo and then Apollo is pissed at them, too. Oh, that's right. That rings a bell, too. That's pretty much the only other thing. But Calypso wants to keep Odysseus around for sexy times. He doesn't really have a way to get off the island at this point, so... He's just going to go along with it, I guess. (laughs) Whatever. More goddess sex. Why not? (laughs) When in Rome. (laughs) Bone their goddesses. Or nearby. But in another deus ex machina, go-go dancer Hermes flies back in. And he says, Calypso, you can't just keep Odysseus prisoner for sex even though you have for two years at this point so his destiny is not to spend the rest of his days here so you gotta let him go and so she lets him build like a castaway raft yeah always glad to have a always glad to have a hermes appearance here i was always in a good mood when he was on screen (laughs) what what's something that hermes says when he's talking about cersei that He's like telling Odysseus the plan to survive the spell and go to bed with Cersei. He says, you cannot deny a goddess. <laughs> and that's that's another line that I think of pretty frequently from this movie. <laughs> you know, if a woman asks you to do something, you cannot deny a goddess. <laughs> and then in Hercules, of course, uh, Mercury is based off of Paul Schaefer, the pianist for David Letterman. Yeah. Who voices him. And he plays the piano. Is is that who voices him, too? Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those weird 90s references that, like, people are not going to have any idea what that means in 50 years. But Exactly. Here we are. Right. I actually, I don't know if I would have placed that individually. I definitely recognized him as, like, a type or a recognizable thing. But I don't think I would have been like, oh, that's the pianist for David Letterman. Yeah, I think that one's already kind of expired shelf life-wise. Right. And so Odysseus is on a raft now. 
gets into another sea storm. And you said that all the effects were practical. Well, this has some early basic CGI at a couple points. Uh, one of which comes right here when it's like the face in the sandstorm in The Mummy 1999. But here it's a face in the sea waves. That's right. Uh, Poseidon appears. And he's like, you still haven't learned your lesson, Odysseus. Tell me you've learned your lesson. And what he wants to drive home is that without the gods, man is nothing. And he just kind of blows Odysseus around a little more. And I guess vents the rest of his rage. And, and maybe Odysseus accepts that at some level. That his fate is steered by the gods, maybe. It's like the equivalent of the older brother who like holds the younger brother's arms behind his neck and says, say I'm the coolest brother or I'm going to punch you in the stomach. It's like, that's basically <laughs> what Poseidon is doing. You're here. speaking from experience, Dan. Uh, I don't think of myself as that cruel of an older brother, but I, I'm sure I had my moments. <laughs> yeah, perhaps same. But it seems his anger is spent. They've made some kind of peace. And so Poseidon finally lets Odysseus progress homeward. Like, he gets help from some friendly nearby king, and finally he's able to get on a boat and get home. But now he's got to deal with the matter of these interlopers. These men who are shacking up in his house waiting for Penelope to pick one of them. Odysseus gets disguised by Athena as an old man. Some, some cool old man makeup. You know, over the top, but... He doesn't, he's not super recognizable. I, I wouldn't know it was him. Yeah, I had to double take on that. I was like, did they get a double or did they just do some makeup? I mean, I wasn't watching on like a big screen. So it's possible if I had been watching on my 40 incher that would have been a little more clear. But even on my, my uh, 12 inch iPad screen, I was looking at it. I was like, this is good looking makeup, I have to say. Yeah. Uh, and the only people that Odysseus reveals his identity to are his son Telemachus and this other servant who's been around since the beginning of the movie. Mm -hmm. Oh, another thing that's cut out of the book is Odysseus's dog. He has a dog in the book? It would be kind of nice to see that. In the book, he has a dog, and the dog like was a puppy when he went away and actually lives the whole 20 years and is there when he walks back onto the shore and then, like, dies happy, knowing that his master came back. I'm surprised I cut that out, because that's a very, like, American-type story, narrative. Yeah, very touching. But this trio, who knows the secret, they arrange for Penelope to set up this challenge. She's finally going to choose which of the suitors that she's going to marry, and what it's going to hinge on is that they have to string this hunting bow that Odysseus left behind, which has been kind of Chekhov the whole movie as like this really difficult feat. You got to, I guess you got to be really strong. Like that's how it's presented. But I think it's that there's like a trick to do it, which is Odysseus's thing. You know, you got to know the special way which is kind of underplayed when he finally does show up and string it. But nobody else who's there is able to do it. Yeah, this was kind of goofy on screen because they're like stretched. I'm like, oh, how do we get it on here? When like they clearly could just looking at it, they could do it. And I don't know. But 
Yeah, if there was like some trick or something, like I like the idea that you had, it's almost like the sword in the stone type of thing. Like you need to be able to bend it down to do it. And only one with divine given strength can do it or like with the proper birthright can do it or whatever. But yeah, the, the idea that there's a trick to it uh, also maybe makes some sense. Yeah. It, it's just not conveyed visually. I'd right, say. right. He, he puts it like between his legs and he holds it in a weird way, which I think they needed a little more coverage or something to show that he was if he was doing something special. But yeah, he comes up in the old man costume and this group of horn dogs, they're very buffoonish. There's, you know, there's two who are kind of the main, like strong, like, yeah, it's probably going to be one of these guys. But then everybody else is like pretty goofy. There's like a uh-huh. big fat bald guy who's there because he's rich and a lot of just background place fillers. Uh, but they're like, oh, well, he, an old man's not going to do anything. And then, of course, he is able to string the bow and he sh- he shoots the arrow because it's you don't just have to string the bow. You have to shoot an arrow through 12 axes, which I guess have openings in them. And they're all lined up in a row and you got to shoot the arrow. And that's what he does. And I like the editing here where like the arrow zooms through all the axes plunk into the far wall and everybody like a tennis game looks over at the arrow hitting the wall and then they look back and the old man disguise has melted away and now he's regular Odysseus. I like that too. I thought that was a good way to do it. It's like, so you don't have to show the morphine effect. You have like a, a edit to reveal it. And that was cool. Yeah. I really like, this is uh, one of my favorite shots in the movie where it, the camera kind of pans so you can kind of see the loops and like it's a very pleasing pattern. And then it kind of positions it such that you can see through all of them like directly. So it almost is like a circle and then it continues to pan and then they kind of spread out again. Um, one of the more uh, artistic shots of the movie, just like a visually striking. Oh, definitely. Another one of this makes me think of another shot I really liked. Well, I don't know if you call it a shot. It's like a series of shots. But uh, going back to the. Cyclops when the Cyclops first works in the cave we get a bunch of shot reaction shots of all the members of the crew looking up at the Cyclops with like open mouth surprise and like aghast at the creature that has just walked in and it was almost like a comedy for a minute there it was making it was making me chuckle right and of course one of the moments that you said where it spares the writing a little bit is when the Cyclops bites off somebody's head and of course you just cut to a reaction shot and you hear the crunch yeah Man, that Cyclops scene, that really makes the movie. There's, it's like a Cyclops scene with two hours of padding. <laughs> no, there's, there's other things worthwhile, too. So now Odysseus has won the challenge, and he's got to deal with these would-be usurpers. And he and Telemachus massacre all these guys in rapid succession. It's just a bloodbath. And it's almost like... I- it felt like unnecessarily cruel. And one of the guys is like, hey, you don't need to kill us. Like, we didn't really actually harm you that much. Can we just leave and pay you back for the food we took? Which I'm like me being reasonable. Like, that sounds very fair. What They had every reason to think he was dead. He was gone for 20 goddamn years. Yeah. And he even made Penelope promise to get, get married. married. <laughs> and Odysseus is like, nah. And he goes inglorious bastards on him, like raining down. <laughs> hellfire and killing everyone in the room 
Yeah, it's like the ending of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like, right. they lock all the doors and just become a whirling tempest of death. And then the only people who are left behind at the end are the protagonists. But this is definitely a scene that I would wait for. I would sit through the love scenes as a seven-year-old to get to the fat dude getting shot through the neck with an arrow. In defense of your take that you had to survive the, the love scenes to get to the the action scenes, the dudes getting impaled by an arrow and stuff. They're not very like erotic or sexually charged love scenes. They're just like partially clothed people. The one, the Vanessa Williams one, the, the Calypso was the one moment where I felt a little bit of steam popping off the, the screen, but in general, it really, it did not feel, it, it didn't feel horny despite being textually horny. If that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's right. And so I guess somebody carries away all the bodies. <laughs> Just we don't see that part, the cleanup. Somebody calls Mike from Breaking Bad. And uh, yeah, Odysseus and Penelope reunite. It's the end of the journey. He finally made it home. Uh, one thing that I wanted to bring up is the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks, where at the end, Tom Hanks comes home. He makes it off the island and he comes back. And what's kind of been sustaining him the whole time is the idea that he'll be able to reunite with his fiance. Only when he gets home, he finds out that she has remarried. And I think they have a kid, too. You, know, you could do like a violent ends of Castaway <laughs> versus this. And imagine the flop, the swapped ending. Tom Hanks running around with a bow and arrow and impaling dudes with. Yeah, if disguise it as an old man. That's what I was thinking of from the very first time I saw Castaway was. You're just going to let this guy take your turf? No. Did you not watch The Odyssey 1997? <laughs> you need to take your, like, coconut ice skate axe and split some heads. Alternate ending on the DVD. I want to see it. <laughs> um, have you, It reminds me, have you ever seen the SNL skit, the alternate ending to It's a Wonderful Life? No. What happens in that? It's pretty funny. And Does uh, he just kill himself? <laughs> No, no. Uh, it it basically picks up right where the movie ended. I think it might. It's not really an alternate ending so much as an extended ending. And of course, SNL, so it's fake. But like right there, then uh, the uncle, the the dopey uncle who forgets things. Like, wait, I remember. I put it in the. I put it in the newspaper that old man Potter took. Let's go get him. And so then they run over and then it's a scene of them beating up Potter and like jumping him and like throwing him on the ground and stomping on him. And then at one point they do a, like a clever thing where the actor falls down and then they pick it up and it's obviously a dummy, but they're like slamming him against the wall. <laughs> and it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's very dumb and it's essentially just one joke, but it, it made me laugh. I like that. I could see that for for Castaway with a a violent Tom Hanks spree. <laughs> yeah, how many Tom Hanks movies does he kill somebody? I don't think there's many. Oh man, that's a good research project for me. I could pull out my master list. <laughs> Some homework for next time. But I liked this watch. The final dialogue exchange of the movie, where Odysseus reunites with Penelope, and. It, she says something like, it's been 20 years since you held me in your arms. He says, it's been a day. And she says, then you've seen the world in a day. And he says, you're my world. It's like, oh, nice. 
good got some, good line yeah. he's got that 20 years on the ocean riz <laughs> and that's the odyssey from 1997 do you have additional thoughts dan things you want to talk about before we try to rate well i guess one thing that i would say i, I have a couple of thoughts i'll say for my my rating but the fact that it's an adaptation made me slightly more appreciative of it. Like I kind of get the place for like a very faithful adaptation of something. I'm not sure that every adaptation needs to be this faithful, but particularly when you're dealing with like a detailed piece of literature, I think it's kind of cool that it exists. And like, I probably would have liked the Odyssey even more when I was in 10th grade. I didn't get all that much out of it when I was in, I think it was ninth grade. Actually, I didn't get, I was kind of medium on it. Uh, and like there are parts I remember and parts I don't remember. And I remember the text being kind of hard to get through. Like the story was fairly interesting, but the text itself for me, I, I kind of had a hard time with, which I really struggled with until I got a little bit older getting through old, like anything not written in a modern style, but I've gotten better about it. But um, anyways, I guess what I'm saying is I might've thought this was even cooler if, uh, if I had seen the movie, seen the adaptation at the same time I read it. It's kind of like I really liked when we read Much Ado About Nothing that year because that same teacher showed us the Kenneth Branagh adaptation of it. And it was really good and like great representations of the characters. And I was like, oh, this is a fun story. And there's like I get the this, what's going on with it now that I kind of see it. And yeah, that's interesting. Different forms, different uh, media for adaptations are going to grab people different ways. Right. And in some ways, it feels kind of silly to be like that kind of makes it bulletproof from complaining about the plot to some extent, because it's Homer, it's ancient Greek, and it's basically text to screen. It's like it's going to sound silly saying what getting too petty about like the plot points, you know? Yeah, that said, it is very episodic. Mm -hmm. And at points, it's kind of repetitive. Yeah, I agree. Like, did they need two sea goddesses? There's also <laughs> this bit where Telemachus gets on his own boat and heads out to sea. And he says he's going to try to find evidence of what happened to his father. And that doesn't really amount to anything besides he meets up with Menelaus. And Menelaus says, yeah, just assume he's dead. He's got to be dead. He's been gone too long. Which... Like, you could have come to that conclusion at home. Right. It's like, some of it does seem as kind of fluff, you know? Mm-hmm. But I love the puppets. Oh, yeah. You know, I've talked before that I, I like the tradition of kind of Harryhausen epic films drawn from mythology. And to me... These miniseries, the whole lineup, just kind of elevate the TV movie form. Like, you see some stuff you wouldn't necessarily expect from a TV movie. This, to oh, me, yeah. is bigger potatoes than even something like High School Musical. I agree, yeah. I mean, I'll kind of address that, like, how I see this in, in my rating here. Okay, well, are you ready for that? Yeah, so let's do that. So... Is It Good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight-point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating, Torta Good, which is an eight out of eight. So I'll go first. I will say whether The Odyssey from 1997 is good. And um, in, typically, like what I've found is that for a TV movie, you kind of start 
somewhere on like the four ish, maybe low end four, high end three, depending on the caliber that we're talking about. Um, if it's if it's musical or high budget or fun in some way, then obviously you can go up from there. But that's kind of where I find my median, like maybe one point or a point and a half or so on the is it good behind the way I view a normal movie. Like my default movie is right between a four and a five, say. But that said, I kind of when this started, I could tell it was a bigger deal than like your normal TV movie and just really high production values and and, uh, acting and really fastidious writing because you're taking it straight from the Odyssey. And I kind of from the first few minutes pegged it as a five, a good. And I never really wavered on that too much. I always felt like it's it's good. I'm glad it exists. You know, it's not high art cinema it's still there's still a kind of a veneer of just like churning it out and having it exist rather than trying to elevate it to art um, which i often find when i watch tv movies but it's it's well executed and it's it's pretty entertaining and like i said i'm glad that it's it's as faithful as it is and like really it, it immerses you in the homeric material and I, I liked the Odysseus actor. I thought the cast overall was fairly strong. Cu- couple of cheesy scenes and this and that. And yeah, it, it does drag out and you really start to feel how repetitive and episodic it is. But I think in the scheme of TV movies, you can really tell that this that they put a, a lot of effort and a lot of money into this one. And I'm going to say that the Odyssey from 1997 is good. What, what about you, Brian? Is the Odyssey good? It is good, Dan. So I'm going to go a little higher. If I were just to go off nostalgia and the role that this movie has played in my life, I would probably give it a seven. Exceptionally good. Uh, I'm going to scale that back just a bit to a six out of eight, which we call very good. That's because it does drag. It's quite long. Um, Some repetitiveness. Uh, but there's a bunch of scenes that I like a lot. Uh, the Cyclops bit is very well done. Even the Trojan War stuff at the start with the Trojan horse. I mean, it's it's huge. This is the best Trojan horse I think I've seen on TV, at least. Hmm. I mean, it's very faithful to the book, so I think it gets some kudos for that. And, I mean, wow, the fight at the end and the slimy Scylla thing... Like, this just really is a film that made me see the potential of movies at a young age. And, like, maybe I was a little too young to watch it. But it, I wouldn't say it, like, bothered me or scared me or anything. I was just a little bored by the sex scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> maybe I developed an unhealthy bloodlust. <laughs> but uh, it's cool. I mean, I, I think it's well done. Maybe not a must-see, uh, but I recommend it. Cool. So, Dan, I have not made it home yet. Hopefully in the next week I will do so. I'll arrive on the shores of Ithaca. But what do we have coming up next? Yeah, so we, we're going to have an interesting month and a half or so. Let's call it an interesting month from from here because we are approaching, as I mentioned, my birthday. And um, I have a couple of fun things up my sleeve, but... Uh, what I'm going to do is host, I, I, I've actually already done it, rented out a theater to show a movie. 
in celebration of my birthday. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in the coming weeks. But I actually couldn't quite arrange that until a few weeks after my birthday. So between now and then, I'm going to do some like build up runner up uh, birthday picks, like the kinds of things that I've thought about choosing for my birthday in the past. I'm just going to choose them now and then it'll culminate with my 35th birthday episode. Listeners, if it sounds a bit vain to celebrate our birthdays that much, just know that that's a good thing. We do it. We do it for, for both of us. And this is the first five birthday or zero birthday that either of us have had since the pod started, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. It's a milestone. Yeah. So in terms of what I am going to pick next, man, I am going to pick pick a last day of school movie slash graduation movie. I have like five of them that I want to talk about. Which one should I go with? Let's see. So, Brian, uh, I'm going to choose a movie that I have always loved since I saw it. And I have a lot of nostalgia for, but I've never seen the show that inspired it. And that is Recess Schools Out, which is a great start of summer movie or at least an interesting one. And have you ever seen this one, Brian? I have. I remember that I rented it from Blockbuster at some point. So I think this might be a fun one to talk about. Yeah, I was a big fan of the TV show when it was on. And actually, it was the very first thing I watched through when Disney Plus dropped back in November of 2019. Oh, cool. So we can talk. You can maybe give me a little bit more insight on Recess. And then I can and and then we can talk about the movie about uh, the last day of school and the, the subsequent following couple of weeks in this cartoon universe of recess. And so that is recess schools out from the year 2001. Wow. Sounds like fun. Yeah. And, uh, I will spare you. Can't hardly wait. And I love you, Beth Cooper, uh, book smart and a few others, but, um, okay. Yeah. You know, you've got to sprinkle, got to sprinkle it out. Um, I actually have seen the Beth Cooper one. Really? That's like a totally random ass one. <laughs> I think you wrote a blog post about it at some point and I saw it was on Hulu and I, I did watch it. Okay. Well, I, I think Hayden Panettiere is really, really attractive, which is kind of the point. I mean, that was a, a major contributing factor to why I watched it. Okay. <laughs> it, it, that said, I am going to go and spin the uh, track. Is it Green Tambourine, I think, from the trailer or the uh, the credits yes. of School's Out. So I'm going to go play that. Right. Good. Yeah. We can talk about the music in it. There's some good music in that too. So, And I hope, listeners, that you will join us again. Thanks for sharing our odyssey here on The Goods. Mm-hmm.